the word of God from Romans. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the hearts to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in, in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. All righty, please be seated. Uh, so quickly, I just want to give a brief welcome from Ronnie Garcia, our head pastor. Uh, he asked me to let you all know that he misses you and that he has been attending General Assembly, which is the largest gathering of our denomination, meets once a year. A lot of important stuff gets decided at these meetings, but he wishes you well and will be back here uh, very, very soon. And so today, we have the great privilege of having a guest preacher uh, coming to us from one of our sister churches in the PCA, from Deer Creek Church, uh, Reverend Daniel Nealon. Daniel, come on up. So he'll be bringing God's word to us today, and we're so thankful that he's here. And I'll go ahead and uh, just pray for you. Our dearest and most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it cuts sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it brings life. It doesn't come back void or empty. I pray that you would bless Daniel, give him your words to speak, and cause that word to be planted into our hearts and bring forth a great abundance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there we go. Hey, great to be here. Uh, as Joel said, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors at Deer Creek Church, which is, yeah, a sister church in Littleton, and really privileged to be with you guys. I've actually preached at Denver Press a couple of times. New meeting location, which I absolutely love. This is a wonderful school. You guys are really blessed uh, to be here. And this morning, here's what I want to start us out with. I want to start us on a historical journey, because we just had a... A holiday in the United States, Flag Day. Who celebrated Flag Day? Okay, nobody. And we also have the 4th of July coming up. And those are two really patriotic holidays, and they really have their root in the founding of our country with Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, who was the third president of the United States, 
At that time in 1776, uh, he was just a representative from Virginia to the Second Continental Congress. But Jefferson in 1776 wrote some words that really encapsulated really profound thought, uh, words that captured hundreds of years of political thinking and philosophy, but more than that, they really capture our imagination. And he wrote these words. You'll be familiar with them. He said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And like I said, Jefferson in those words, right, he captured political philosophy and, you know, enlightenment thought all in those, but he also conceived of something completely new, something that was not just a new idea of a new nation, but of a nation formed by an idea, and it's the idea of freedom, the idea of liberty, that human beings could live and self-govern in such a way that they could leave, live in complete liberty and complete freedom from anything above them. That's the American idea, isn't it? And that instinct or that idea is really right at a core level. You probably feel it yourself. You probably really love this idea of freedom. I know there have been times in my life when I've desired freedom, freedom from a job or freedom from my home church. I have four kids, so to be here this morning, I feel immensely free. So we all have this idea of freedom, a new life, and I'm sure you've all asked the same kind of question, is that life possible? And we live in America, and that idea of freedom is a distinctly American idea. That's why we love everything that is free. We love buy one, get one free sales. We love to eat at restaurants where kids and senior citizens eat free. We love the song Free Bird. And we love our salad dressing fat-free, don't we? Everything that's free is something that we love in the United States. And now I take you on that historical journey because it really highlights this case that Paul, who's the author of this letter in Romans that we've been reading, it really highlights everything that Paul's been arguing for from Romans chapter 1 all the way through Romans chapter 5. Paul has spent five and a half chapters trying to prove this point, that freedom, true, real, lasting freedom is available to anyone who is willing to reach out and grab it. And it's not a political freedom. It's not freedom from the English empire. It's not a freedom outlined in the Declaration of Independence or in the U.S. Constitution. After all, those freedoms are tenuous, and they're subject to change as the proceedings of this last week in Washington have shown us and made it so clear. No, Paul is interested in a much greater freedom, a true freedom. So what is it? What is this freedom that Paul's talking about? Well, you can see in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. So if you flip back, if you have a Bible, if you flip back just one verse from the verses that we just read, you can see what kind of freedom Paul is gesturing at. In verse 14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you. That word dominion is a, a word that a king would use, or it's indicative of what a king has. A king has power, a king has rule, a king has reign. And Paul is saying, hey, sin, they know, it no longer has dominion over you. 
since you are not under law, but you are under grace. That is the freedom Paul is speaking of here. It's a freedom from sin and a freedom from being under the law. We have to be careful here, too, because sometimes when we hear freedom from the law, we think, okay, God then has set us free from the Ten Commandments, or He's set us free from God's moral guidance for our life, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Some misconstrue Paul to mean that here, but we know that's not right. We know that's not right because Jesus Himself said that's not exactly what He came to do. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said there, this was in His Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons that He ever preached. He wrote there, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I I didn't come to abolish the law. That's not what I came to do. I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to throw it out. I came to bring it to bear. So what does Paul mean then? Well, very simply, here's what Paul means. When he says we are released from the law, no longer under the law, what Paul is saying is we as followers of Jesus are free from the curse of the law. Let me say that again. You as a follower of Jesus, if you follow Him, if, if you live out your life to please Him, you are free from the curse of God's law. And that idea of curse, it might not be something that we regularly talk about, but it's actually weaved throughout the Bible. In fact, it's in some of the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we hear this story of God. He creates this beautiful world. And he commanded his creatures, Adam and Eve, the first human beings created, not to eat from this tree, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And after much temptation from Satan, who's this deceiver disguised as a serpent, Eve reaches out and then Adam reaches out and they eat from this forbidden fruit. And God in response, he comes to Eve and he gives her this curse telling her that she's going to have pain in childbearing. And then He looks toward Adam and he tells him this. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And you flip over just just one chapter from there. So Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, there's this squabble between Cain and Abel. Cain is the brother of Abel, and he's jealous of Abel. So Cain, in cold blood, murders his brother Abel. God visits Cain and says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So the opening chapters of the Bible, you see this idea of God's curse on disobedience, and it continues on. I could cite multiple other instances, but I'm just going to point out to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God's people have been liberated from Egypt, as Joel reminded us this morning in our call to worship. And He's giving them His law, and He tells them, 
hey, if you obey, then you're going to receive God's blessings. But then he tells them these words. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your baskets and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you're destroyed and perished quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And I would continue on with this, but that goes on for 44 more verses. So you're welcome. So what's the point here? Well, the point is exactly this. Paul is saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are no longer under the curse of the law, but you, now you are reigning under grace. You are no longer under God's curse. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer guilty or deserving of God's judgment and punishment for your sin. You are free from your sin. You are free from the curse of the law. And he's saying that is the true freedom I'm writing about. Paul writes about this in another place, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He puts it in beautiful words. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul is saying, that is true freedom. Jesus has bore our curse for our sin, and now you can reach out and grab that freedom that he has to offer. Or in the words of Horatio Spafford, he was a, a hymn writer. He wrote it in this way, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Paul says, you are free from the curse of the law in Jesus. And that led to a question in the minds of these people who were hearing these words from Paul. And this was a logical question that they were asking. They said, well, what then is Romans 6.15? What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law? but under grace? See, that's a logical question. If we're no longer under God's curse, if we're free from condemnation, if we're free from the penalty of our sin, then can't we live any way that we want? That's a logical question, isn't it? If God will never hold my sin against me, then aren't I free to live as I please? And in our passage, if you're following along kind of by an outline, we're going to have two points because Paul answers this question in two ways, this logical question that everybody has when they hear the message of God's grace. Paul answers and says, by no means, by no means, because true freedom is slavery to Jesus. That's point number one. Then point number two is going to be by no means, because true freedom brings life. By no means, true freedom brings life. So if you look at verse 15 in Romans chapter 6, Paul begins to answer this question. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, 
either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. We often hear that term freedom, don't we? And to our ears, freedom can give us this idea of freedom as absence from boundaries or freedom as no constraints whatsoever, freedom from anything that would stop us from living how we want to live in the way that we choose. Uh, Maybe a good example of this comes from Elsa from the movie Frozen. So if you've seen Frozen, it's a, a really good story. Elsa is the queen of this town called Arendelle. And as the queen, she has these magical powers, these kind of uh, magical powers that allows her to turn anything into ice at any point. And in her entire life, she's been trying to conceal this power that she has for fear that if anybody figured it out, they would ostracize her and make her an outcast. So what does she do? She finally moves on from Arendelle. She runs into the wilderness and she sings this song. Go ahead, sing it with me. You all know it. Ready? No, you don't have to really sing. Okay. The song goes like this, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Right, that is our idea of freedom, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. No boundaries, no moral constraints. In other words, I have the right to live how I want without any boundaries holding me back. And that idea of freedom is not just held in Disney movies, it's also really the definition of freedom from the highest court of the land. This comes from the Supreme Court. Justice Anthony Kennedy once defined freedom as this. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So see, Disney, on one hand, and the Supreme Court are really capturing how we think about freedom as Americans, as humans living in the Western world in the 21st century. We usually think of freedom as no boundaries and no constraints. And you probably see this arise in your own life, don't you? We, we often say things like, I know I made a commitment, I, I know I made a vow, but wouldn't we be better off if we called it quits? You know, you even have a wedding ring to make that promise, but if you're married, you even have this idea that sometimes sneaks in. It's this suspicion that, hey, if we could just call it quits, then we'd finally be free to be our own people. Or sometimes you'll think, man, work is so difficult. Work is so challenging. I have so many obligations, but one day when I reach retirement or, you know, when I'm my own boss, then I'll finally be free. Or we can find ourselves looking to the next stage of life, like when I'm no longer changing diapers or when my kids are out of the house or when I receive my pension or when I graduate from school or when I'm my own boss, then I'll be happy, then I'll be free. Or any number of times we can say, you know, if I would just indulge in this one way, if I I would just give in to sin one time, if if I could just do that, then I'll finally be relieved, I'll finally have freedom, I'll finally have the release that I'm longing for. In other words, this comes out as nothing more than the mantra, no right, no wrong, no boundaries, then I'll be free. And I want you to think, even even as we think of that idea of freedom, you realize, we all realize that's a little bit naive, isn't it? Because it's almost impossible to live without any sort of boundaries. If you think about it, whenever you make a choice for one thing, you're automatically limiting yourself and not making a decision for another thing. So if you want to work out at night, so you put the kids down, you want to work out, you want to walk on the treadmill, and you have this option before you. I can do that or I can eat ice cream. Now, this is the dilemma I face every Saturday night. 
And I faced this dilemma last night. I'm not going to tell you which one I picked. But the second that I choose ice cream, I'm voluntarily saying no to working out, aren't I? And if I were to choose to work out, then I'd be voluntarily limiting myself and saying no to ice cream. So if you ever make a choice, you're putting yourself in boundaries. So to say you can live without those is completely naive. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul is saying freedom is not the absence of boundaries because we're all bound by something. Paul is saying, in fact, we're actually all slaves to something. And he puts it into two stark categories. He's saying you will either be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you will be a slave to Jesus, which leads to life and leads to flourishing and leads to freedom. And you can see how Paul kind of outlines this throughout this passage. If you have it open in front of you, you can see in verse 16, Paul puts this in either or terms. He says, we can be enslaved to sin or we can be enslaved to obedience. Then just two verses down in verses 17 and 18, he says, we're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Then verses 20 through 22, he outlines how we are either slaves to sin or slaves to God. You see that, right? He's saying that no matter what, you will find yourself in one of these two categories, either enslaved to sin, which is true slavery, or enslaved to Jesus, which is the true freedom that you actually are longing for. There's no other options. It's one of these two. That's really important because in our culture, right, we, we can often view Christianity itself or the Bible itself or following Jesus itself. We can view those things as somehow a hindrance to our freedom. After all, Christianity, it does. It draws lines. It draws boundaries. It tells us there are certain things we have to believe, and there are certain things that we're supposed to refrain from and certain things that we're supposed to do, like we're not supposed to engage in drunkenness or sex outside of marriage, and we're supposed to believe things like Jesus being the Son of God. So no matter what, it draws boundaries. There's one woman, her name is Charlene, and she was featured in a, a book by M. Scott Peck. M. Scott Peck was a New York Times bestselling author. He's actually a, a trained uh, counselor as well. And Peck in his book is talking about his counseling sessions with Charlene, and he notes that Charlene was feeling trapped. She was feeling isolated. Uh, she felt stifled and constrained in her life like she just couldn't break through. And after hearing her story, he had learned that Charlene had grown up as a Christian. And he asked her in this counseling session, would you ever consider maybe just going back to the life that you left, becoming a Christian again? And Charlene in response said, quote, never. There's no life for me in that. I need to be free to be my own person and live for my own sake. Christianity would be my death. We ought to live for our own sake, don't you know? Not for God. Christianity is a straitjacket. That's ironic, isn't it? Because here's a woman who confessedly believes that she's trapped, that she's stifled, she's constrained. And when she's asked about Christianity, she says, no, that would be my death. That would make me feel trapped, stifled, and constrained. In other words, Charlene, like our culture at large, believes that Christianity, it, it's a hindrance to freedom. It's, it's a straitjacket. It means to confine me. Now, for you here this morning, take, take what Paul says seriously. When a, when a person is united to Jesus through faith in Him, when they become 
a slave of Jesus, meaning they call on Him as their master, they want to follow Him sincerely and, and follow His way of life. Paul is saying, then and only then will you experience true freedom, the true freedom that you're looking for, because you're living within the boundaries that will lead to life. So, for instance, you know, you think of sexuality. I, I wasn't always a, a Christian. In fact, I became a Christian in college, and I remember when people were telling me about Christianity and what that meant for my, my sexuality at the time, I was thinking, <laughs> you got to be kidding. We had a sexual revolution after all. How can anybody say, I can't do what I want with my body, when I want, with whomever I want, and become, before becoming a follower of Jesus, that's what I thought. But I want you to think, what has been the result of the sexual revolution? What has been the result of sex without boundaries? Heightened divorce, proliferation of single-parent homes, overall objectification of women, and secular research also bears this out as well. Paul would just say, hey, look, look at the secular research. Those who are married and are in an exclusive, committed relationship with a member of the opposite sex, they, they show a greater sense of sexual fulfillment and satisfaction. Paul would respond to us and say, who, who really is free this side of the sexual revolution? Or look at other areas of our life, going to church, how we spend our time, what we do with our money. Again, Paul would say, look at the secular research. What does it say? Those who give more money, we're told, are happier as a result. Those who serve their local church or serve an organization outside of themselves, they're seen as more joyful. Church participation as well. Uh, through the COVID-19 pandemic, they were tracking these things known as the happiness index, and they found that among Christians who regularly participated in their church services throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, their overall happiness index went up where every single other subcategory of people, their happiness index went down on average 8%. So Paul would say, again, who's really free? Who's really free? Elsa, if you go back to Elsa, right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. And then she finds herself free, living in isolation, in a castle, all alone, without a jacket, in a blizzard wilderness. Is she free? Paul would say, probably not. Probably not. So back to our question, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Paul says, by no means. Paul says, true freedom comes not when you are free from boundaries, free to sin, but he says, hey, true freedom comes when you live within the right set of boundaries, living within the boundaries set by Jesus. You are either a slave to sin, which is true slavery, or you're a slave to Jesus, which is true freedom. And notice what Paul says in verse 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. See, Paul goes from talking just about this idea, that this question that people have, and he directs this directly to the church at Rome. And he says, hey, church at Rome, look at your life. You're an example of true freedom. You're an example of what slavery to Jesus actually looks like. Verse 17, he says, you've become obedient from the heart, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And then he says in verse 18, continuing on, 
And having been set free from sin, you have become a slave of righteousness. Almost all commentators, when they, they read these verses, they think Paul is referring actually to a promise that God had made all the way in the Old Testament, a promise made to the prophet Ezekiel that he delivered to God's people. God said one day he's going to come and he's going to pour out his grace on all people. and It's going to have this effect on them. God speaks through Ezekiel and says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. In other words, true freedom. Ezekiel's thinking of this day that's to come and he's saying, this true freedom looks like when a heart, which was once hard as, hard as stone, it had no desire for God, no affection for His ways, no care for God's rules at all, no commitment to God's commandments. Now it gets turned by the grace of God and by the cleansing of God's Spirit. And as a result, it now has desires that reflect the desires of God, affections that are for God's commandments, a longing to walk in the way that Jesus walked. And a person begins to reflect Jesus more and more and more as they follow Him more closely. That's true lasting freedom. And it only makes sense, right? The closer you become with somebody, the more you become like that person. In college, I lived with three roommates, and by the end of the three years, they started doing a lot of the things I did. They started drinking coffee. They started cleaning the apartment, actually. They started waking up early. I was an early morning person. I wake up at 5 a.m. usually. They started waking up at 9 a.m., which was an improvement from 1 p.m., and they, I started doing things that they did as well. I started listening to Drake. Exactly. I started watching Friday Night Lights and watching Notre Dame football. It was terrible. See, these are things I would never do in my right mind, but because we lived close together, I became more like them, and likewise, they became more like me. So if we are united to Jesus by faith and under His grace, given new hearts by Jesus... Wouldn't it be the case that our desires, our inclinations, our love, our affections would reflect more and more the life of Jesus? I think this way often. I think I love Jesus, but I don't really love the church. But Jesus says He loves the church. He came to sacrifice His life for the church, to lay down His life. I love Jesus, but I, I don't love the Bible. Well, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So you cannot say, I love Jesus, but I don't want to follow him in obedience to his rules, to his laws, to his commandments. Because those who are forgiven by Jesus under his grace are also transformed by Jesus more into his likeness. Those who are free from the curse of the law have been freed to finally, out of a sincere heart, cleansed by God's Spirit, to obey Jesus and experience the true freedom and flourishing He has for us. And now if you're thinking, wow, this is, this is all kind of heady stuff, Paul actually levels with us. This is what I love about Paul. So verse 19, Paul makes it clear. He says, hey, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Uh, that's not saying very highly of us, by the way. But he says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In other words, he's saying, I get this, this idea is difficult to grasp, right? Because we usually think slavery and we think drudgery and hardship, and that's right. But he's saying there's a paradox here. To be free, you need to become a slave to Jesus. In order to be liberated, you need to be confined by Jesus. And he says the term for that is sanctification, right? That's what he says at the end of verse 19. At the end of verse 19, he he puts it clear that the end of living for Jesus leads to sanctification. And sanctification, simply put, just means growing more and more like Jesus, progressing in holiness, moving away from unrighteousness and living to righteousness, putting ourselves away from impurity and living toward purity. That's what sanctification means. It's living in holiness. And Paul, throughout the book of Romans, if you've ever read the book of Romans, he really brings up these two theological terms. The first is justification, which we read about earlier in the service. Justification simply means by faith in Jesus, you are forgiven by God of all your sins, and you are righteous in His sight because of the life that Jesus led. You are perfectly righteous in God's sight. Sanctification just means how God sees you As perfectly righteous, God is making that true of you in your heart and in your life and in your mind and in your affections and in your will. So my uncle John, he used to be a pastor. Actually, my wife's uncle John used to be a pastor. And he had this extensive book collection, like thousands of books. And some of them dated back to the 19th century. So you can imagine, after that much time being handled by people and on bookshelves and, you know, subject to wear and tear and moving and all those things, they started getting a little bit ratty, but they were very precious books to him. So what he would do is he would take these books and he would go and get a new cover for these books because he knew that these precious, timeless books, if they had a new cover, then it would protect them from any dust or mildew or water to penetrate through and start to infiltrate the pages underneath. That's how Paul wants us to think about justification and sanctification. Justification is that new cover that God has given you. God looks at you and He doesn't see all of your doubts, all of your failures, all of your irritability, all your jealousy, all of your unrighteousness. No, He looks at you. He sees this beautiful, pristine cover of Jesus and His forgiveness. He looks at you and He sees His own Son, Jesus, through faith in Him. And then sanctification means God is then taking those pages, which are worn as well, on the inside And he starts renewing them more and more and more to reflect that beautiful, precious cover. So Paul's answer, are we to sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. Don't you know, true freedom means slavery to Jesus. True freedom looks like a new heart being sanctified by God, pursuing holiness, and living the life that God has created you to live. And lastly, as we close here, look at the final verses that Paul lays out, verses 20 through 23, because Paul proceeds with his second point. He says, should we live however we want because we're under grace, Paul says, by no means, because freedom, true freedom brings life. In verse 20, Paul writes, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
See, Paul makes an appeal here to the church in Rome. He makes an appeal to us as well. Paul says, hey, when you look at your life, look back at your former life, when you used to walk in sin, when you didn't believe in Jesus, when you didn't want to follow him, look back at that life, when you lived to gratify, gratify your selfishness, to indulge your lust, to live for the approval of others, what was the result of that? What was the outcome of that way of life? Did the sin that promised life and freedom ever actually give you the life and freedom that it promised, or did it always lead to shame and death? And Paul, to give us the answer for this, he uses a metaphor of a tree. That's where he talks about this fruit. He's saying that old life of sin is like taking a good tree and planting it in a desert ground where it's barren, no water, nothing to give it moisture. Does it ever produce the good fruit that you're longing for? Likewise, every time we live outside the boundaries of Jesus, the result is always fruitlessness. It's always fruitlessness, and it always leads to shame and death. I experienced this just yesterday, right? I, I mentioned I have four kids, and my wife Hannah said, hey, I am exhausted. I was, I was in Birmingham this last week, so when I came back on Saturday, she said, will you please watch the kids for me? And I thought, I'm a great husband. Of course I'll do that for you. And so I'm watching the kids and I'm making pancakes and kids are loving me, saying, dad is great. He always makes pancakes. I even put chocolate chips in them. And things are going wonderful. So finally, you know, the house is clean. This never happens. And I think I'm going to get some work done. So I pull out my computer and I start doing work. Well, no more than four minutes in to start doing work, I hear this dull roar from my daughter, Jane, my th one of our three-year-old twins, this dull roar and this screaming. You can tell she's irritated at one of her siblings. And then all of a sudden, she just bursts out in this scream. And I'm trying to get work done. I'm really focused on this. So the first impulse that raised up in me was to yell at my daughter, Jane, and go, Jane, what are you doing? And what do you think the result of that was? Do you think Jane stopped whining? How do you think I felt after that? I can tell you that I live in the death and the shame of my own pettiness and ruthlessness. And after that ended, my son Eli came up no more than two minutes later, and he's frustrated because he said, our other twin, Annie, pulled his hair. And you know what I said to him? I don't care. And what's the result of that? For those of you who don't have kids, you'll realize what I'm saying one day. But the result was my son Eli felt like his dad doesn't care about him, and I felt the shame of being a careless fa father. Moms, I don't know how you do it. You know, that was just one day. I've done it before. Yesterday was an especially hard day, but Hannah came home and she asked, how did it go? You know what I wanted to say? Fruitless. It was fruitless. Because the end of those things, that former way of living, is death. Paul says, that is no longer who I am. That's no longer who you are through faith in Jesus. You have been given God's spirit and empowered to live in true freedom, true righteousness in following Jesus. I love how Michael Ramsden, one author, put it. He said, whenever you try to break God's law, you wind up proving God's law while breaking yourself in the process. And so Paul ends verses 22 through 23 with these great words. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think I can end a sermon on better words than that, but I will end it on one question. Do you want freedom? Do you want that life under grace? Well, Paul says it is free, freely offered to you as a gift. All you have to do is reach out and grab it. It's the free gift of Jesus Christ.